0: I'm Matthew Moore, and you're listening to In His Name, the Deluxe Edition. I spent the fall semester of 2020 in an independent study, reading articles and books about my thesis topic. I was digging through the university library resources and came across an article titled, Why Evangelicals Voted for Trump, Critical Cultural Sociology. The author was Dr. Phil Gorski, a professor at Yale, And there was a paragraph that we you know talk about in this conversation that just blew me away. I quoted it on Twitter, tagged him in it, and after some DMing on there, he agreed to be a source for the podcast. A few of his articles were really critical to my research, which you'll hear. Our conversation happened in early February 2021. Before we get into it, I have a newsletter that I would love for you to sign up for. Link is in the show notes. It's a place where I give more information about my guests, I talk about their involvement in the original podcast, and so much more. You'll hear me reference different writings from Dr. Gorski throughout the interview. And if you want to follow along with us, you'll find the links there. Every time an episode of the podcast comes out, you'll get a notification in your email inbox. It's also a really helpful way for me to hear directly from you. What you like, what you don't like, etc, etc. All right. Here's my interview with Dr. Phil Gorski. All right, so if you don't mind, just start with your name and your title, and we'll go from there. My name is Phil Gorski. I'm a professor of sociology and religious studies at Yale. And can you give me a little bit of background in your research and study, and
1: what you what you tend to spend a lot of your time doing? Sure. The focus of my research is. Religion and politics in early modern and modern Western Europe, in the U.S., and in recent years, I've been focusing primarily on the on the U.S. And so, I came across your work through
0: uh, your uh, article about white Christian nationalism. Can you can you give us just a little bit of an overview of what how you would describe white Christian
1: nationalism? Sure. So, I would. Um, give you two ways of thinking about white Christian nationalism. So, one way to think about it is historically. And um, so, white Christian nationalism is a certain story about American history. It's a narrative in which America was founded as a Christian nation, it was founded by, in some sense, for white Christians. And um, is, in some sense, blessed by God with unique power and prosperity. And in return for those blessings, it has a duty to spread civilization, Christianity, freedom around the world. And it's, those blessings are under threat increasingly in the present moment because of um, the increasing number of non-Christians, non-white people, non-Americans on American soil. That's a historical definition. And you know, looking at the present day, you could also think about it the way that somebody who does survey research thinks about it. It's, it's a bunch of attitudes or preferences that tend to be statistically correlated with one another. So if you ask people a bunch of questions about what they think about American history and the place of Christianity within American society, you'll find that people who hold a broadly Christian nationalist view tend to also hold certain views about issues like immigration, gun control, the military, the police, welfare, certain kinds of social justice movements. And those correlations, it's not obvious why they exist, right? It's sort of hard to say, well, that's all biblical um, because it isn't in some sort of self-evident way. So I think you kind of need to combine the historical and the statistical perspectives to really understand it.
0: Yeah, in your research, you you lay out four key elements of kind of how we can, using these four elements, we can see that someone fits into the category of white Christian nationalists. You say racism, sacrificialism, apocalypticism. That's a hard word to say. Apocalypticism and nostalgia. Um, I want to dig in a little bit into the nostalgia element of this. Um, Do you see a direct connection between nostalgia and martyrdom within white
1: Christian nationalism? I sort of see the martyrdom as um, coming from a slightly, slightly different place. And um, so this requires another little detour back in history, uh, back, to, back to the Civil War period, and the development of the lost cause mythology um, in the South, which is kind of a rival version of, of White Christian nationalism, right? That's an alternative to the version in the in the North, and um, it really puts martyrdom um, and kind of warriordom really very much at its center. And those things are increasingly flowing together today. I think that's one of the unusual and important changes that you see in white Christian nationalism in the last year or so. Um, increasing numbers of images. For example, the one that really hit home for me uh, was was an image of Trump as a crucified Christ with a MAGA hat on the top of the cross, right? So that's something that's new. I had never seen anything like that before, and I've been studying this for, for, uh, for a really, really long time. Um, but, you know, certainly, like, Warfare and sacrificialism and martyrdom have always played some role in in white Christian nationalism, uh, but I think are increasingly prominent now. It's interesting because there's this element,
0: uh, I grew up evangelical, I grew up in a small Baptist church, and there's, there's kind of this disdain within evangelicalism of like iconography, that like when you look at a, a Catholic church and you see all of these, you know, icons of former uh, saints or, you know, People of the past, you know, evangelicals tend to look on that with some disdain, but there seems to be a new kind of iconography that, that occurs within Donald Trump. Is that how you would describe
1: that? It's a very nice observation. Because of course you're right that in uh kind of Baptist tradition, Methodist tradition all these sectarian Protestant traditions that really go clear back to the Protestant Reformation. A lot of what they were rejecting was the, you know, the iconography, the ritualism, the formalism, right. And, you know, you contrast a little Baptist church with a big medieval Gothic cathedral. Those, you know, the one is very self-consciously plain and the other quite self-consciously Grandiose, and so it is. It is. You're right that it is strange to see uh, this kind of iconography coming back. Though um, you know, it does have an almost um, cartoon-like character. Some of it. Some of it literally is, you know, in the form of a cartoon. You know, Trump is Rambo, for example.
0: Yeah, that's 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 something I, I just connected. Like in this in this moment, this idea that you know, I remember the first time when I, I went to a small Christian college, and we took a we took a religious studies uh, field trip essentially to a synagogue, uh, an Orthodox Jewish um, synagogue, um, to a mosque, all of these places. And I remember being um, – feeling very out of place seeing all of these icons of, of past figures and thinking like you know, we don't as, – as a Baptist, we never put that sort of emphasis on – On folks of the past. And, and in fact, a lot of, a lot of people who I grew up with would regularly pray for practicing Catholics because they were worried about their salvation. They were concerned that they were praying to, you know, mother Mary, or they were praying to these, uh, these past figures instead of just praying directly to God. Um, and it's interesting that, that there seems to be this, there's this intercessor, in a way, of Donald Trump, that, that people are putting all of their faith and hope in Donald Trump, and he is the one speaking directly to God, which is very, very odd thing to, to
1: imagine, right? Yeah, no, for sure. You probably saw the news that uh, all of the former living presidents, as far as I know, with possibly exception of Jimmy Carter, with the National Prayer Breakfast Today, with one exception.
0: Yeah. So there's a, we'll, we'll move on just a little bit. I want to kind of get into the, the racism element of this. This is kind of one of the key parts of, of my research here. You write quote, almost from the start, American religious nationalism was alloyed with racist elements. Can you elaborate on what you mean
1: by that specifically? Sure. Absolutely. So, here we have to really journey much further back in, into history into the into the 1600s so you know we're, we're talking really you know the first 50 100 years of um, you know America of English colonialism in in America so first let's focus on um, New England and the the English Puritans who settle in Massachusetts and here in Connecticut where I am um, and elsewhere elsewhere in the region and they pretty quickly um, you know, get into conflicts with the with the native peoples who are here um, and this is a real dilemma for them right when they arrive here they think of themselves really quite literally as a kind of a new chosen people. They think of New England as a new Israel, as their promised land, which God has given to them. And their journey over the ocean was like Exodus, right? And they were literally fleeing a pharaoh. They were fleeing a repressive English king. Uh, So then who are the Indians, right? In that story. So for a while they think, "Hmm," you know, maybe they're the lost, one of the lost tribes of Israel. Um, but as their relations with the, with the Indians go from kind of friendly and cooperative to conflictual and even uh, violent, some Puritan theologians say, well, no, you know, maybe they're actually the Canaanites, the Amalekites, and we're supposed to wipe them out. Um, later in the century, um, some prominent Puritan the- theologians like Cotton Mather starts to say, well, um, you know, it, there's all this warfare going on here and also in Europe, and maybe this is really the beginning of the end, and maybe um, these are actually uh, warriors of, of the Antichrist, or maybe they're they're Satan worshipers, right? So from very, very early on, uh, kind of religion and race are getting, are getting mixed up with each other. And the other piece of the story that you sort of need to know is, you know, we kind of shift our, our focus now further south to the Virginia colony. So, um, you know, the way in which slavery, this enslavement of natives and um, also of African Americans, of course, is justified as well. These are heathen peoples and it's all right for Christians to enslave heathens. And that's a, Christians were, this was unique. I mean, you know, Muslims enslaved Christians and, you know, Christians enslaved pagans, um, you know, this was a common justification. But then what kind of uh, throws a wrench in everything is that a number of enslaved people start converting to Christianity. And what does that mean? If they're no longer heathens, can they still be slaves? And so then the, there, there's a sort of a shift from a, a kind of a religious to, um, a kind of a more racial justification but then of course this racial justification has to be fit into a biblical history and you know the most common one i'm sure some of your listeners will know the story is the story about the curse of ham right so noah has three sons and um, one of them uh sees him in an embarrassing state of undress and noah uh curses him and so people said, well, this is, you know, the Africans are the sons of Ham. Their color is um, the mark that God put upon them. Their enslavement is the, the punishment that, that follows on the curse. So you know, there you've sort of again brought religion and race together in, in, in this consequential way. And that there are lots, this goes through lots of transformation. Um, as uh, American history proceeds, but in a way, the die was cast in the 1690s.
0: Yeah, and and as we as we keep moving forward, we're looking into you know really white evangelicals became a prominent voting presence in the 1950s and 60s, and especially behind someone like Jerry Falwell. Um, what do you think was Jerry Falwell's impact in activating? White evangelicals
1: as a prominent voting block. It was it was certainly big, though. Um, you know, I would I would even look a little bit further back than that. I would I would go back to to the 1950s and some of the early struggles around uh, civil rights during the second civil rights movement. Uh, the um, the conflicts that followed, in particular, Brown versus versus the Board of of Education and so that's already when you you start to see some Northern Republican politicians say, aha, you know, maybe we can attract, um, you know, some Southern segregationists into our party. And it's also when you see some prominent Southern politicians already, like Strom Thurmond is a very good example of this, actually, who, uh, you know, is one of the first to, you know, he's a, you know, kind of a Dixiecrat and he becomes, he becomes a Republican and then um, you know, he, they do this really quite cynically. I mean, they're really quite aware of, of uh, you know, of, of what they're of what they're doing, kind of playing playing the race card. I mean, I'm not saying that Strom Thurmond wasn't really, you know, a dyed-in-the-wool racist. Um, you know, I have no doubt that he was. But um, there's also just a kind of a cynical political calculation. And then, you know, those are the seeds that were planted in the 1950s, and then they start to really come to fruition. Uh, in the 70s and, and the early 80s because this is when you really start to see you know the, the solid South, which had been solidly democratic for ever since the Civil War, uh, you know gradually start to turn uh, Republican. And there's lots of reasons for that. Um, you know, I don't want to boil it all down to one thing, but there's just no question that part of it is a backlash against civil rights. no question.
0: One of the evangelical leaders who you point out in your writing who kind of from the beginning stepped away from Trump was Russell Moore, who uh, at the time was the head of the political arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, can you talk about the significance of, of him doing that and whether or not it really mattered at the end of the day?
1: I mean, I, I do think that um, it, it, is, it is important that a number of um, leading Southern evangelicals and um, white evangelical uh, thinkers did um, distance themselves early on from Trump on on the ground um, that um, his campaign was shot through with with racism. I think it was I think it was very important just in um, you know making clear that there was daylight and that not everybody was sort of marching. Uh, you know, in in, in lockstep and in in this direction, and just also, I think, to signal to the wider world that there, you know, that there were and are, uh, you know, a good number of white evangelicals who are very, very seriously committed to um, at least racial reconciliation in some sense. Um, I mean, racial justice might be another matter, but certainly racial reconciliation. You know, and who are not racist in the garden variety uh, of of that term. Um, so, yeah, I think it was, I think it was very important, but, you know, as you say, I mean, even now, um, the ba- the battle around war continues, right? I mean, there, again, there's another campaign going on right now uh, to basically kind of uh, close down uh, uh, this, uh, this eth- off for ethics and religious life or ethics and religion theology, but this, or theological ethics, something like that, this, this, uh, this, um, office that he runs apart on the grounds that uh, it might be hurting donations, which um, <laughs> I mean, seems like pretty, pretty thin justification.
0: Yeah. So, so one of the things that, that really Jerry Falwell kind of helps lead the way with, and uh, does this a lot with the help of, um, I'm blinking on his first name, Schaefer, um, the guy who kind of Francis introduces Schaefer. Francis Schaefer. Thank you. Uh uh, it kind of introduces him to the idea of of building the moral majority voting block around the issue of abortion and being a pro-life place. When I look at people now who I know are dyed-in-the-wool Republicans, they will tell you that they don't care who's running for what office, that the idea that their presidential candidate says that he is pro-life is reason enough for them to vote for a Republican. What do you, what do you say in response to people like that? Or, or what, what kind of, how can you kind of give some historical background to why that became an, uh, such an issue and, and maybe the, the facetiousness of, of that being the issue that it, it claims to be?
1: Well, I, I don't want to sort of argue with pro-life folks on, on sort of moral, moral or theological grounds. I mean, I, you know, I, understand that um, there are some pro-life folks who just have really, really deep beliefs and convictions um, uh, about abortion that uh, that overrule everything else and that they're really just one they're one issue voters. Uh, I mean, I can put that a little bit into historical perspective though. Um, you know as interesting as you know late as the, as the, the early 70s, there really was no difference um, in the attitudes that uh, sort of white evangelicals had towards uh, abortion as compared to to the rest of the population. They were mixed, um, and you know there were even some uh, evangelical and other Christian clergy who um, saw it as a matter of women's rights. So there was this kind of conflict, which there still is about you know are women's rights versus right to life. How do you, uh, how do you think about that that possible kind of conflict or, or or tension? And there's a lot of people actually who historians now who think that the real root of that even goes back before Schaefer that it really had more to do with a kind of systematic campaign by some conservative Catholics, people like uh, Tom Weirich and uh, Richard Vigery, uh to really use that as an issue to. Um, pull uh, Catholics who tended to vote Democratic towards the Republican Party, and then also to pull uh, more and more white evangelicals into a coalition with uh, with conservative Catholics, and you know that that really doesn't fully succeed until, as you say, kind of the mid or late '70s, when um, you know being pro-life really becomes kind of kind of a litmus test. I will say one more thing: um, there's a a, uh, a fellow sociologist at the University of Illinois, Eastern Illinois University named Ryan Burge, um, who has studied this a lot. And one of his interesting findings is this. If um, you ask uh, conservative white evangelicals, you give them like a list of 25 issues and you say, okay, just tell me like prioritize these, so what's your number one, what's your number two, what's your number three, and so on, um, you know, for, the majority actually of white evangelicals, abortion doesn't even wind up in the top 10, uh, which is surprising. So I don't know what to make of that. It, it you know, one interpretation would just be that there, there is a, a group of people from this is, you know, the central issue, the only issue. And then there are other people who sort of will say that, um, if you put pressure on them. Um, but that's just one interpretation, and this would really need to be studied more. You know, you'd have to talk to a bunch of people to really figure this out. Yeah,
0: going back a little bit to to the issue of racism, uh, you pointed out in your you, you pointed out a speech pattern that that Trump had when he was referring to a category of people or a group of people, and that he would put a definitive article. In front of that, whether it be the gays or the blacks or the Mexicans, there was always a "the" in front of that. How does that affect how he and his supporters view a category of people that they're not a part of?
1: Yeah, so I'm, I'm glad you glad you brought that up because that's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. So I I think that the way that white Christian nationalism works in American politics. Is it always works in concert with a certain kind of white Christian individualism? And one aspect of that is that um, only white Christian Americans are really truly and fully individuals. I mean, they sort of belong to a group, but you know, they're never just a group. Whereas other groups are treated as if they were just just a group. Um, so you know Trump in a way, is playing into that by always using the definite article as if you know the blacks or the Mexicans or the gays or whoever uh, were just a sort of faceless, homogeneous blob, you know that didn't where there were no sort of individuals you know with who were sort of unique um, unique in their in, in their own ways. And this is also kind of important in terms of how the politics works. So, my favorite example of this is like the transition from, uh, the Tea Party to Trumpism. Right. Cause you know, the, the Tea Party, it, you know, you talks about freedom is, you know, kind of has libertarian politics. It's about, you know, government taking over our lives, government taking our money, government, you know, uh, taxing us too much, you know, T equals tax enough already. And then you go go to Trumpism, which is all about you know unity and strength and the nation, and we're all in this together. And if it, 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 if those were two separate groups of people who were supporting the Tea Party and you know Trump, you wouldn't be quite as puzzled. But it's like the same group of people who are supporting both of those both both of those movements, and so you know you get the get the individual you get the white Christian individualism when non-white people are making demands or look like they might make demands on white people. And then, you know, then white people are able to make demands uh, on the nation or on the government, you know, as a, as a kind of a collectivity. So it's complicated, but I think you have to really see the way those two things interact with each other to understand some of our politics right now.
0: Well, there's an interesting element too, and, and I'm I'm interested to try and tie this together. That with evangelicalism, there is, from the spiritual side, there is a an individualism with that. There's a personal relationship with Jesus. There's this personal salvation moment that you yourself have, and nobody can say that you did or didn't have it. Um, you know, when I was a kid, we had praise and worship songs that talked about like, uh, you know, we're just like, we don't care about religion. We care about Jesus and our personal relationship with him. And there's an element of that too. When we look at, when we look at Trumpism, that it's, it's, you know, I, myself, like I care about myself, Trump cares about me and everyone else can just go screw off. Right. And there's this idea that like, as an evangelical, it's really hard it's, it's not wired in our brains from a spiritual standpoint of this collectivism where you see in a more high church capacity, whether it's, you know, Catholicism, even Lutherans have this high church capacity where they put so much emphasis on the church and on uh, repetition and on, uh, you know, the, the – the way things are done every single week. Whereas in the Baptist church, it's kind of fly by the seat of your pants. Um, And it's, it's very much just like move as the spirit leads you. Um, And I wonder if there's a, are you seeing any connection between those two when you think about how evangelicalism is very like individual based and and I care about myself and my own religion and uh no one else can judge me but at the same time I can also like put judgment on other folks and and their relationship do you see that connectivity Absolutely. there you you're
1: really you're really seeing this you know very very insightfully here what's what's going on so here's the way I would put it is that um One of the most important forms of um, conservatism today is what you might call an ethic of personal accountability or an ethic of personal responsibility. And that sort of says, you know, uh, know, life is all about choices and consequences. And that's true across every realm of life. Of course it's true in your religious or spiritual life, you know, because you either choose salvation and Jesus, or you suffer the consequences. But it's also true in your your work life, right? I mean, you make choices about your education or about your consumption, and you know if those are good choices or bad choices, you know you face a certain set certain set of consequences. It's also true in the political realm, right, where it's all about law and order, right? That uh, you know, you sort of have to go along with these rules, and if you violate the rules, well, sorry, then, then, then you suffer the consequences. But as as you say, um, thinking about this really um, cuts the individual off from um, other people and the way other people influence them, from their community and what they might owe to their community, and frankly, also from history and the way that history. Uh, shapes the the world that we live in, right? I mean, we're just, you know, we're born in born into a particular world with this, with its goods goods and its and bads, uh, you know, from that we inherit that we inherit from the path. Um, and that's not that's not the only kind of Christianity. I mean, that I think is also very important to say. So, you know, think about it historically. If you go back to like, you know, the Puritans or you know, the um you know, the Anglicans and the in in the colonies. I mean, they very much, like you said, had this idea that we are forming a community, like a religious community, a political community. And um, you know, you kind of go back to that John Winthrop speech that people like to quote, you know, about the shining city on the hill. You know, it it's a city and the, the Reagan speech, quoted that. Exactly. And the but the speech, if you read the whole thing, it's all about Charity and being knit together as one, right? And the obligations that we have to 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 one another. Um, or if you look at um, you know sort of a a kind of a black prophetic Christianity, you're going to find the same thing. You know, you're going to find this idea of you know the seamless garment, the you know the beloved community, social justice, what what we owe to one another, and so. I think you're right that there has always been a kind of an individualistic current within uh, Christianity that's been especially strong within Protestantism, But that is not the only current. And even in the United States, it has not always been the dominant current.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, after, after I kind of stepped away from the Baptist tradition, I— started going to a Methodist church. And actually the college that I went to had Methodist roots and, and we learned about the Wesleyan quadrilateral and, and, you know, there's the four, the four pillars that there's a reason, there's scripture, there's tradition and there's experience. And, and it's so fascinating to me, like growing up in a, in, you know, the evangelical world where it was like scripture and that was like the top of the world. And like, you couldn't argue with scripture and it was inerrant and it was infallible. And then, you know, you, you, you could maybe insert your experience if it supplanted the scripture, but there was no, you know, within the quadrilateral, uh, those are all, you know, equal pillars, right? And and within, you know, evangelicalism that like scripture dictates everything and our experiences can sway the scripture to say whatever we need it to say at the time, um, but there's no, you know, like – checks and balances within that, um, which, which I find very fascinating. Yeah. yeah,
1: No, and I mean, I think you're, 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 you're right too that. Um, you know, even within the, within the evangelical world, you know, there are still, um, currents that, you know, kind of are more associated with, with Calvinism that have a kind of a deeper, more complex sense of a kind of theological tradition and that, you know, the Bible is not a self-interpreting document. It's not easy to read, um, you know, and it requires, you know, that's why you that's why you have a clergy, a learned clergy, to sort of help people to understand the the text.
0: There's a point that you make here in your article where you note the dichotomy or the polarity between Obama's campaign themes and uh, Trump's campaign themes in 2016. And when we look at Obama, Obama's themes were hope and change. And Trump's themes unofficially were things like fear and decline. What role did these themes play in Trump's rise to the top of the GOP ticket?
1: It is one of the great puzzles, you know, of uh, of our era, right? How it was that um, he won the nomination and why it was that that certain folks uh, certain folks supported him. I, I don't think there's one answer to, to, to the question. Um, I mean, I think the puzzle I've thought about the most is is again, the, the appeal to, to white evangelicals. And, um, you know, I do think this has a lot to do with, um, kind of a, a, fear that, um, that they're losing their kind of cultural dominance, you know, sort of losing, losing the culture. Um, you know, they are, I guess as of 2008, white Protestants were a minority in the United States, you know, 48% or something like that. So still most people, but no longer a majority. And that's, you know, the first time in American history where that's been the case. So I think, you know, fear, right? Kind of fear of decline uh, in numbers. I I think the problem is that this loss of dominance um, often gets... Interpreted as a situation of persecution. Um, I mean, are there people who don't like evangelicals? Are the people who want to fight with them sure? Um, but uh, you know, the idea that white evangelicals are the most persecuted group in the United States, I really find very difficult to accept. And I just, my experience, I just don't see see the evidence for that at all. Um, so yeah, I think fear is definitely. Definitely, uh, you know, part of it, right, seen through that lens.
0: Do you think Donald Trump could have ever been the Republican candidate if it weren't for Barack Obama, our first black president,
1: being the outgoing president? Uh, you know, it's a little hard to imagine, isn't it? You know, because his, well, he, of course, had toyed with running for the presidency a number of times going back to the 1980s. So it's not that that's the only reason the thought occurred to him, but um, I mean, I do think that, you know, he used the kind of birth or lie as a way of, you know, coming to real public prominence, you know, sort of moving beyond his, you know, celebrity apprentice days. And I do sometimes think there was just this moment at the, was it the White House correspondence Dinner where Trump was in the audience? Yeah. And Obama kind of poked fun at him. You know, he played this little, yeah. you know, outtake from The Lion King and so on and so forth. And you, they, I remember seeing the camera pan to Trump, you know, who was just, you know, so furious. I and mean, you could just see, the, literally see the steam coming out of his ears. And I thought, looking <laughs> back, it's like, well, I bet you that's the minute when he decided you know, no black guy is gonna to talk to me like that. I'm gonna run for president, I'm gonna show him. Mm. And a lot of his presidency was um, kind of oriented towards just undoing anything and everything that Obama had done, so no, no question. I mean, that there, you know, there, there was, in his personal conflict with Obama, um, a kind of an expression of racial conflict and racial animosity um, kind of backlash against Obama. I, you know, you, I'm sure you remember this too. That you know, when Obama was running, and after he was elected, there were just a lot of people said, "Well, he just doesn't seem American to me," or "He seems kind of funny to me." Well, what is that supposed to mean? I mean, I, you know, he's very, you know, very educated, very polished, you know, very kind of professional guy you know okay he grew up in Hawaii which is a you know an unusual an unusual place but I mean I don't see what the guy could be except American and um and yet that just didn't fit this idea that a white Christian nationalist had of what it meant to be American which is to be white which is to be Christian to be native born.
0: I was a freshman in in college when Barack Obama was elected. It was the very first presidential election I voted in. And I remember we found out Tuesday night, like the night of the election, that Barack Obama was going to be our next president. And we came into, I had a Wednesday morning class the next day, and it was kind of a uh an orientation style class where it was you know across the board different majors different people within the university and we come into the classroom and the the orientation class is taught by an art professor and so he comes in and he sits down in his chair and he said well we just elected our first black president and as soon as the words came out of that professor's mouth there was a student in the class who spoke up immediately and said he's half black and that moment really stuck with me and it was really the first time that i had really ever experienced something like that where there was this this qualification or there was this you know like he's not quite as he's not the black guy that we think Mm -hmm. he is you know he's not he's not fully black. He's like, he, he doesn't get to be the first black president. And, Mm. and that moment has stuck with me for, you know, we're going on eight or nine years now at this point. And, uh, yeah, that really kind of pricked something in my brain that thought something's, something's off here. Um, and the moment always stuck with me.
1: Yeah, no, there's a kind of I thought that's a really that's a really interesting anecdote. You know, there's kind of a, you know, a little bit of a fear there of, in the background of kind of race mixing and miscegenation, right? But of course, it's also in a way ludicrous. You know, given that um, now any African American who's not a recent immigrant to the United States, of course, has um, you know European white blood flowing in their veins. Um, just no question about that. So somehow, you know, only being half black, it's not exactly an unusual situation.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, and, and it's as interesting now as we look at our first woman of color vice president that there's that there's the same kinds of conversations happening like, well, you know, she's not really. African-American because her, her father's from Jamaica and, and her mother's from India. And it's just like, you know, they had slaves in Jamaica too. <laughs> and just like, you know, there's a, there's, there's always, it feels like there's always going to be some sort of,
1: yeah, but happening mm-hmm. through all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Somehow they're not authentic or somehow yeah. they're not genuine. Right.
0: Yeah. So that, that moment just kind of stuck out to me when we were talking about Obama first becoming president. Why do you think socially conservative white evangelicals supported Donald Trump for president?
1: So I, I think it was a, a mixture of things. I, I think there were, um, you know, some folks who really are single issue voters. I think there are some folks who are um, just think well being evangelical and being Republican are more or less the same thing. Donald Trump is a Republican candidate. I got to vote for him. Uh, But you know, the thing is that there, he was still the favorite candidate of white evangelicals from the very beginning, you know, even when Ted Cruz um, and Jeb Bush were in the race, you know, both guys who, you know, would seem to have more credible Uh, evangelical bona fides than, uh, than certainly than Trump did. And so that makes you start to think, well, there must be, must be something else going on. And, um, I, I guess I kind of came to the conclusion that there was some way in which Trump's view of the world echoed, uh, a kind of white Christian nationalist view of the world that's common if not universal, amongst white evangelicals. So just, I mean, kind of let me break that down. I mean, one, um, you know, so one element of white Christian nationalism is this sort of end times narrative that, you know, I'm probably going to see the second coming in my lifetime. You know, I'm looking around uh, for sort of signs at the time. You know, maybe I went to a prophecy seminar, you know, where somebody tried to, Sort of show how revelation foretells certain things that are going on in the world, um, and you know that's a kind of a real you know forces of light versus forces of dar- darkness worldview, isn't it? Right? Um, you know, well, it's sort of like Trump's worldview, right? I mean, you know, there's there are people who are loyal to him, and there are people who are against him. There are friends and their enemies, and for him you know, that's all politics is about. And the moment that somebody, no matter how loyal they were to him, crosses him, you know, they're out. And you know, he's always had this kind of a view uh, of the world as, you know, kind of a, you know, you know, a jungle or, you know, uh, an endless battle for, for dominance. So th- I think there there is a sort of a resonance, right? Um, and then the, th- the second thing is, you know, the kind of the make America great again slogan. So I do really think that when some white Christian nationalists heard that, what they heard was make America Christian again, or and maybe a little bit more quietly, maybe let's make it white again too, right? So kind of connecting, you know, kind of the nostalgia to the, the nativism. When we think of,
0: I think really the first time we saw a Republican presidential candidate kind of really take hold of white evangelicals was Ronald Reagan. And one of the things that we saw with Reagan was it was a lot more of a dog whistle kind of racism that when the the topic came up of states' rights, for example, everyone knew what states' rights meant. It meant segregation. It meant, you know, the coloreds over there and the white people over here, and and over the years we saw this continual dog whistle where you know if you knew what to listen for and you knew what frequency it was hitting at, you were hearing that racism. And then we get to Donald Trump and he pulls out the world's largest bullhorn and is just shouting from the rooftops with this racism. How, how did this evolution come and and why are we still having a hard time? acknowledging this racism for what it is, do you think?
1: Yeah, well, I, I certainly agree with you that there, there, is, there is a real shift there. Um, you know, in, in some ways, maybe the, the question is the reverse one it's like, so what sort of happened between 1960 or 70 and the year 2016, you know, why do people use a dog whistle instead of just shouting it, shouting it from from the rooftops? Well, um, and there were
0: people who kind of were shouting it, right? There were people like Goldwater. Right. There were people like Wallace who right. were shouting it and they were, you know, they were castigated and said, no, 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 we can't do that. So we, we could see the racism. We could see the like obvious elements of it. So where did, where did, where does that threshold come in? You know what I mean? like where do we say like this is, this is where we can accept a tolerable amount of racism, and anything above that mm-hmm. we have to set aside and ostracize
1: yeah it's, it's it's a very good question. I don't know if I have a great answer to it. I mean I think it, you know some some people would say well it was it was sort of the work of the you know, country club Republicans who controlled the party for a very long time, and they just said you know, all right, um, I'm going to run my Willie Horton commercial because I got to do that to win. Um, you know, or I'm going to let my operatives run this robocall against John McCain in South Carolina. But, you know, I don't think that, you know, George H.W. Bush or George W. Bush were racist. I really don't believe that. Yeah. Um, and that they kind of kept those those forces, I think, as you say, were always there. Um, would have liked to have, have shouted and been heard, but were kind of kept quiet by the republican establishment and so it probably really just does have to do with the kind of growing strength of movement conservatism and you know more and more kind of outsiders and more and more folks from the fringe are kind of pushing their way in, in you know into the center and you know look now we've got marjorie taylor green right um who really is uh, somebody very much from from the fringes and yet i don't know almost looks like the heir apparent to you know is minority leader to kevin mccarthy she certainly wants to be (laughs) this interview she certainly wants to be yeah um but i don't know i mean how or why that happened it is it is a stunning development why you know those voices you know became so much louder again sure i think it has to do with that to do with obama it has to do with the economic crisis it has to do with the pandemic you know there are a lot of people out there who were angry, they're hurting, you know, they want to look for somebody to blame. They want to look for somebody to kind of take on the cause.
0: Where I grew up in, I grew up in southeastern Illinois, which is where Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, all meet down there in the middle of nowhere. Nobody, nobody lives there. It's super, super red. Uh, The, the congressperson who spoke at the Trump rally and made the comment about, you know, Hitler, Hitler made some good points. That's their congressperson if that tells you anything wow. about where I grew up. And there's this just, you know, it's you either are a farmer or you're a coal miner in that part of the country. And neither of those things are, are very profitable at this time. And, you know, there's a lot of dissatisfaction and, and there's a lot of elements of like, it's, you know, 95, 97% white, more than likely. And, you know, they're looking at, they're looking at, You know, what happened in the early 2000s, especially around the, you know, the economic crisis and, you know, they saw like, why why is nobody looking out for me? And for them, you know, Trump coming to say like, I'm here to get rid of the blacks. I'm here to get rid of illegal immigrants who are stealing your jobs not stealing jobs in Southeastern Illinois. Like no one wants to go to Southeastern Illinois and work at a coal mine or a, you know, like people are leaving by the droves to get out of there. But there's, there's just this like comforting rhetoric that it's like, Mm -hmm. I haven't forgotten about you. And, and I wonder if there's an element of like, the, the fear thing is really what drives home for me. And especially when I think back to within the Christian especially the evangelical world, there's a lot of fear-based sermons. There's a lot of rhetoric based around this idea that like, if you don't get your life together, you're going to hell. And we had like, you know, you've, you may have seen like documentaries about hell houses. We hosted hell houses. Like we had youth conferences based around these ideas of just like fear and and just like hopelessness in a lot of ways. And so when I when I, when I see these elements of like fear and decline, like of course that resonates with poor white people who have no choice but to pray to God and hope things are gonna work um, and to have someone who whether he sincerely meant it or not was saying the things that that those people wanted to hear maybe that was that was it right It was this idea that like, well, you know Obama didn't actually care about me because he was too busy trying to get health care for all these you know welfare queens but you know why wasn't he helping me and so there's an element of that too that I think plays
1: into this idea of fear and decline Sure sure no I mean there is uh, look I mean there is there's a lot of anger and there's a sense of abandonment and that's not made up that's not fake that's real and I I totally Totally understand that. I I just wish that those folks um, had had a better tribune. You know, some a worthier person to kind of speak up on their behalf. Somebody, you know, who wasn't just doing it. You know, as a kind of a long con to get their votes. But yeah, you know, actually, you know, felt some real personal connection, compassion for these folks. But um, you know, I, I do think for some people that just um, you know having some a powerful person who can voice the anger that they feel and express it towards people, you know, who, you know, they feel angry about that couldn't really confront, well, you know, I mean, that's already, that's already something for, for a lot of folks. Um, I, I do think, you know, one other thing though that is going on here that maybe doesn't get discussed enough is um, just the, the sort of disappearance of like local, Media like local news, local radio stations, and sources of sources of information. You know, I mean, the situation we have right now, where almost all of the news comes from, you know, New York and LA, or certainly from, you know, big cities. Um, you know, via national newspapers and national television stations. Um, I mean, I'm old enough to remember, you know, when most towns had had like a local paper and. Um, you know, even sort of the regional newspapers, they often had their own person in Washington, you know, who would report on politics, kind of through a lens and in a language that people could understand. And, you know, also a person, you know, who was from wherever, and whom they felt like they could trust. Um And so now, of course, that vacuum, what's filled that vacuum, I mean, you know, part of what's filled that vacuum is, um, you know, right wing talk radio and Fox news and now OAN and, and, and Newsmax. Um, and so, you know, those, that, those are, those are the trusted voices.
0: Yeah. I have two more questions for you. If you've got just a little bit more time for me, the first one, uh, so you and I connected over Twitter when I, when I posted a, uh, a quote from this article that you and I have been spending most of our time talking about today. Um, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to throw it in the chat here. I'm going to ask you to, if you will um, read this for me, because I think it will have a lot more resonance coming from your voice since you were the one who wrote it. So there's the quote for, if you don't mind reading that for me and then we'll talk about it after that.
1: The election of Donald Trump constitutes perhaps the greatest threat to American democracy since the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. There's a real and growing danger that representative government will be slowly but effectively supplanted by a populist form of authoritarian rule in the years to come. Media intimidation, mass propaganda, voter suppression, court packing, and even armed paramilitaries, many of the necessary and sufficient conditions or an authoritarian devolution are gradually falling into place. Whether America's political culture and institutions are resilient enough to withstand these developments is an open question.
0: So you wrote this in 2017, it was published in July of 2017. What are your immediate thoughts upon rereading this when you thinking about what you wrote back then, what you were thinking when you wrote it back then, and thinking about the context of it all now?
1: So it, it it does read, it does seem very prescient. in in, in retrospect, um, I mean, especially now, I think if you had read this in twenty eighteen or maybe early twenty nineteen, you might have said, "Oh, come on, you know, the guy is kind of exaggerating a little bit. He's getting kind of hysterical. You know, Trump is more incompetent than he is malevolent. Um, you know." all of this is just these all bark and no bite. We're going to get through this just fine. But, you know, over the last year, um, I think that we have seen a lot of these things really come into place. And I, I you know, I would say that the election was, you know, kind of a near death experience for, for American democracy. And it's not the, uh, you know, that was one episode. It's, um, you know, it's not, it uh, doesn't mean that, that, that we're in the clear. I, I, Um, I'm somewhat terrified about the 2024 elections, to be honest, and how they're going to go. Yeah. Um, Because now it's very clear how rickety our electoral machinery is. It's clear where all the links are and all the pressure points and all the weak spots. And you can be sure that uh, the next time around that uh, the folks who were behind Trump, whether they're Republicans or whether they're part of a Patriot party that he formed, you can be sure those folks will do whatever they can to kind of be in those strategic positions um, you know, to affect the outcome of, of the election. So it could be even more tumultuous, I think, than in, in 2020.
0: Did you have an editor who looked over that article before you had it published? Nope. Hmm. What kind of feedback did you get from the publication when you wrote that
1: uh you know i mean a lot of people did read that did read the the article of course but you know it's an academic article it's not like a you know a piece that was in yeah it's not it's not a political or, or anything yeah like <laughs> right i mean so um no but it i do know that it. you know when i look at um You know, like my websites, that that's one of the most read and most downloaded things I've ever written, actually, even though I really wrote that article in two or three days, um, kind of in mid-January.
0: Last question for you here. How can the election and presidency of Donald Trump, what can that tell us about the future of the Republican Party?
1: That it's completely up for grabs right now. Um. I, I think it's very hard to see how it all plays out. Um, I just don't know. Um, I mean, I, you can certainly see a for the moment. Uh, I mean, Trump's hold over the party seems as, as, as firm as ever. Um, you know, that's very much evident in um, the unwillingness of the, uh, the Republican Senate to really take the possibility of impeachment seriously is quite clear, and their fear about um, punishing Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, but on the other side of the coin, there is enormous pressure from the donor class um, to to do something. I mean, they, you know, at the end of the day, uh, business requires predictability, and. You just can't have that level of incompetence and chaos um, in, in the White House again. It's just it's just not good good for business. And I don't think that, you know, folks who write the big checks are over anxious um, to revisit that experience. You know, the My Pillow guy, notwithstanding. Do you think he'll run again in twenty four? Uh, you know, I right now I would think he probably will. Yeah, I mean, honestly. The the more interesting bat is like who's his running mate. Um,
0: does he run as a Republican?
1: Unless something really radically changes in the Republican Party, yeah. Mm. Um, you know, unless there is a you know group coalesces around you know pushing him out of the party. And I don't see anybody who's got the courage or the power to do that right now. Mm. So that's the bottom half of the ticket, that's the more interesting thing to speculate about. Christy Noam.
0: Yeah,
1: Nikki Haley ivanka marjorie taylor green well she'd
0: be oh she's old enough yeah i'm thinking of madison cawthorn he's the guy who's like 25 um right yeah i know he's too young yeah um it's it's all really fascinating to think about is there anything anything i missed or anything that uh that really kind of sticks out to you that
1: i may not have touched on no i think i think we've kind of covered the waterfront i mean as you can tell i could like talk about this stuff all day but um um, no, I think we've kind of covered most of most of the main points.
0: Great, great. I appreciate your time, Dr. Gorski, thank you for uh, your willingness to participate and uh, I look forward to seeing how this all comes out. so
1: yeah, yeah, no me too me too you know uh, keep keep me in the loop and uh, you know let me know when you you know you're done editing and when the thing gets posted.
0: I sure will I sure will. Thanks for checking out the deluxe edition. Make sure to subscribe to the newsletter. You can do that at the link in the show notes. Our theme song is Apophenia by Ross Christopher. My next interview is with author and Dartmouth College professor Randall Ballmer. Thanks for listening.